Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The sort of rising clout of like left-wing ideas and left-wing people is one of the most interesting political stories uh, of our time. And Sean McElwee is a guy who I, I first met years and years ago and who I think is sort of one of the most savvy, cynical tacticians in the kind of rising left. So I was really interested to, to sit down with him, hear about what he's trying to do with his group, Data for Progress. I think it's a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot from talking to him. Uh, enjoy. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Sean McElwee, is uh, the co-founder and chief meme officer of Data for Progress, which is a, a cool uh, sort of progressive think tank uh, policy organization. And you guys have been out this week while we're talking uh, with, a, with a new progressive agenda project, um, which is a, an interesting kind of thing. I mean, basically, your idea was to take a kind of grab bag of like ideas that are a little outside the bounds? I don't know. How would, how would you describe it exactly? Yeah, the way I'd describe it is that our goal was to find issues that Democratic politicians could run on that are progressive, that would have big impacts in the day, daily lives of Americans, um, but that are also po popular policies. And I think that you have for a long time this idea that, oh, you know, like, all these progressives are coming up with these policies and they're doing like sort of fake polling to blow smoke up everybody's asses. And that had sort of made people broadly distrustful of, I think, a lot of polling coming out of from the progressive side. And so in a lot of ways, I had come to at Data for Progress as a way to sort of push back on that view. And we work really, really hard to try to get people like you and people in the media and even people within the sort of Democratic Party to trust what we're doing and to trust that we are doing this in good faith. So the, uh, the, the, yeah. the dust up your asses version of polling, right, is because yeah. we know when topics are unfamiliar to people, uh, what you get in a poll is very sensitive to exactly how you frame the issue and how you phrase the question, right? So I think a, a classic one of this that I see all the time is if you just kind of ask people like, what do you think about the idea of Medicare for everyone? That does like super well, mm -hmm. right? It's like 
60, 70 percent, like off the charts. Medicare is super popular. Um, and I see people all the time running around with like, why doesn't everybody embrace this? It's a 70 percent issue. Right. And then there's like all this other polling where it's like, well, what if you tell people taxes will go up? What if you tell people it might cover abortion? Right. And and the, the numbers then get get terrible. Sure. Um, and so part of what you do with this is try to have like credible framings. Yeah. So we should talk about Medicare for all. We will talk about it. Yes. Um, for now, this is the, you know, our new progressive gender project, which was mostly aimed at sort of ideas that aren't really like super in the discourse. And so we, we, we wanted to address the exact question that you said, which is what happens when this gets sort of partisanized? And so we said, well, let's partisanize it right from the beginning. So in our polling, we say some Democrats in Congress have proposed this idea. Um, and then we say Democrats say that and we and if it if it costs money, we have a pay for. Right. And we like like one of the things that I've done as, you know, doing day for progress is like I have spent a day on the phone calling up economists like what specific ta payroll tax increases do you need to fund Medicare for all? And it's like a huge pain in the ass because they're like, oh, you know, go to the CBO report and look at the table. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm really dumb. That's why I do polling instead of policy. Like, just tell me the percentage. But so we have exact percentages that we've actually calculated to make sure that that would pay for the project as it's specified. We have an argument from Democrats and we have an argument from Republicans and we put it out there and we include a, a don't know option consistently in our work um, that, if anything, sort of biases against our policy proposal because um, women and young people tend to be more likely to say that they don't know and also tend to be more sympathetic to progressive ideas. So we set up these policies in every way to try to as best we can do in the context of a poll to prepare these to be, you know, battle tested. Here's where the issue is going to end up after it goes to the mire. Nothing we pull is over 60 percent. Mm -hmm. Most of these issues are ranging from underwater to, you know, something around like 46 to 57 or 58 percent support. But we think you know, that's how things are going to actually shape up in an issue that in, in a country that is very closely divided between Republicans and Democrats. So what are you what, what's your your list of uh, big winners here? Uh, yeah. So one of the big winners is legal marijuana is very popular. One of my favorites, and I believe Ezra Klein of the wonderful publication of Vox called it Bernie Sanders's best idea, um, was the government giving prizes for medical innovations that the government would then um, own and control. We love the idea of putting workers on corporate boards, and it turns out that that's really popular. And when we do do these, by the way, we try to look for actual politicians who have proposed them. Um, in the case of, you know, corporate boards, Tammy Baldwin, who mm -hmm. is a senator from Wisconsin, a swing state who overperforms. So we're, we're saying like, look, like you don't maybe you don't even believe Dave for is polling. You should believe Tammy Baldwin mm -hmm. when she says, like, I am a swing district or a swing state senator who who supports the policy. Um, Kirsten Gillibrand's family leave policy uh, is very popular. We found stuff like ending uh, weapon sales to Saudi Arabia is very popular. And I think listeners of the weeds will like this. Um, our 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 pollster friend who worked with us on this um, at Civis Analytics, um, there's a lot of EA, effective altruism people yes. at Civis Analytics. So sort of as like a as a bone to them, we included some, some EA proposals. Um, so there's like stuff on like pandemic prevention and start treaties, um, both quite popular ideas um, that the EA people 
uh, are really invested in because they're trying to find like what are the small policies that we can put in place that will, you know, reduce the chances of all human beings being killed. <laughs> the corporate board one. This is uh, I think Weeds listeners have have heard us talk about uh, co-determination in, in the past, and and to me this is a really interesting one because this is an example of if you have a discussion with like policy people. Right. They will tell you that's like a way out there left wing idea that like Medicare for all. I don't know, maybe. But like they do that in Canada. Right. But like workers on corporate boards like that's some that's some crazy German shit. Right. (laughs) Um, But like mass opinion is just different. right? Right. And one of the things about that, it taps into like class and economic justice concerns, but it bypasses, I think, people's questions about, like, the government, quote-unquote, and it doesn't cost anyone any money, right? And it it pulls very well, right? Like, these are the kinds of things I think that, like, most overperform with the public relative to the sort of wonk class in D.C. is ideas that are seen as, like, directly empowering working and middle-class people rather than, like, transferring money to some agency that we're going to, like, promise you, oh, this is going to be really good. Yeah. I mean, one of our, like, sort of long-standing sort of principles of Data for Progress is that there is, like, a real, I think, disconnect between, like, what the Beltway sees as, like, acceptable and reasonable policy and what voters see as acceptable and reasonable policy. Like we did a, a little experiment um, where we basically just took sort of like what I would call like the data for progress approach to something and then what I would call like the third way approach to something. Not like just like they're sort of like a generic, you know, center or left <laughs> organization. But so like we did like what would you rather do to shore up Social Security, raise the retirement age to 69 Um which is not nice, or, um, you know, raise taxes. And everyone was like, raise taxes. It was like mm-hmm. overwhelmingly. Um, we said, would you rather give people free college or would you rather give them like tax advantage savings account? Um, free college won. There were actually some instances in which the more centrist policy did win um, with, with some of these. But like, so, what, so what's that? Once you, once you become... The, the, the neoliberal Frankenstein's monster was. Yeah, yeah, um, So the the one where it was much more narrowly decided was on climate. Okay. Um, there is still, I think, a lot of popularity among the public in polling on, like, pricing type of schemes on sort of giving money back to people. But, you know, for policy reasons, progressives do not support that <laughs> because you tend to want to try to get emissions reductions on both ends, right? If you're doing a pricing scheme... You want to invest that money in clean energy rather than giving it back as like a, you know, negative consumption. But so, so this is my question because I, I was reading, um, you know, uh, reading your, your your stuff on this and, and tweeting about it a little. And uh, Eric Levitz did a good piece oh, yeah. uh, for, for New York Magazine b- based around it. But one thing that struck me is that I feel like it might be more persuasive to a skeptic if you had put out some negative results too, right? Because I, I, to me, like, I think the implicit message of this and like, like I know Civis uh, who, who did the yeah. polling work on this, like, I, I know they do good work. I, I, I think you guys are smart, right? And like, part of the message of this is like, these are good ideas that you should run on. Sure. Which is to say, like, don't just run on like any old idea right. that you might like hear at the bar, 
right? Like, try, sure. try to run on the good ones. Yeah. So, I mean, like, we have pulled stuff that is unpopular. I mean, we we gave you backend crunch access to our, our stuff. Like, there is, you have access to our polling. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I see. I see the truth. Yeah. Like, we you have access to our polling saying that, like, you know, rights restoration after incarceration is very popular. Um, allowing people to vote while they're currently incarcerated is is not popular. We, right. we know that. Um, it would sort of go against the spirit of the new progressive agenda project in the sense that our goal was to put out policies that, like, you shouldn't run on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, like, you know, I think uh, I think that we had, like, roughly of all the things that we'd ever thrown on there, and there were some popular things that we didn't end up putting out, I think we'll roll out in the future, but probably 40% of them were... We're underwater. Right. Because so I, I feel Universal like... Universal basic income is wildly unpopular. There you go. And reparations, right? Also unpopular. Right. Um, we don't the, even have to do pro and con arguments <laughs> to get that one underwater. I do think it's important for people to know that because I, I see sort of like dueling conventional wisdoms emerge in, in the ether. And one is like there's this kind of like, as you say, like classic beltway thing, which is basically take progressive values and try to compromise them with what like rich businessmen who might cut a million dollar check to the Brookings Institution think, right? And I, I feel like that's sort of classic centrist politics. Sure. And it always pushes you to sort of less soak the richism, more kind of technical fussiness. Uh, and, and mass opinion doesn't really work yeah, like soaking that. Soaking the opinion is very popular. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but then on the flip side, I, I do think there's a kind of like progressive groupthink where then then you hear from people who are like, all of our ideas are amazing. And like, if only everybody would just agree with me constantly. Democrats would win everything. But it's like, I don't know. It's like the boring truth, right? It's like some left-wing ideas yeah. are very popular and others aren't. Right. Like uh, the funny thing is, is like we'll have a detente right now on the show. Third Way and we and Data for Progress strongly agree that like rural broadband is a popular idea. Right. And we will have to fight to the tooth as to whether that is a centrist, pragmatic idea or a populist, progressive idea. Sure. Um, and so like that definitely goes on. But I think that You've hit at something really important, which is that, like, the centrists will be like, oh, all of your left ideas are unpopular. But it's not like the centrists are, like, instead presenting popular centrist ideas, right? Like, the biggest sort of recent sort of centrist revolt in the House was, like, one over Dodd-Frank, right? Mm -hmm. And Dodd-Frank is the most popular part of Obama's domestic agenda, according to the Chris Warshaw data who, mm -hmm. who tracks this. Um, it was, you know, Saudi Arabia arms sales, which I'm sure is not like a big issue in West Virginia. And it was like Medicare negotiation drug prices. So I think that there's a little bit of a, a hat trick that's going on from the centrists of like, well, we have polling showing that like some of these centrist ideas are popular. We also do not plan in any way to attempt to implement that agenda um, going forward. Um, we're actually going to implement a wildly unpopular agenda. Um Say, say what you want progressives. We at least run on the unpopular agenda that we wish to. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying there are actually a lot of really cool progressive ideas that are popular and could change the world. Do you want like an exclusive for Vox? Sure. Let's hear it. So because I was coming on this, I asked um, Michael and Shore from Civis to throw this on. Um, and we have the idea of the government creating, manufacturing generic versions of a drug um, when the price becomes too high. 
Um, we make the argument that Democrats will say, like, this will make drugs more affordable. Um, Republicans say that this will be a boondoggle where the government manufactures drugs that um, aren't needed um, and that these drugs will be inferior and will even lead to the deaths of people who take the inferior drugs. Uh -oh. um, and we still have that at 47 percent support, 36 percent opposed and 17 percent. I'm not sure. So, so there's a popular progressive proposal run on it anywhere. And that would that, that would like change America forever. You would genuinely like reduce the cost of drug prices. You'd save thousands of lives. Right. So for for weeds purposes, uh, the, the issue here is that I think the traditional thinking was, well, once drugs go off patent, they'll be subject to generic competition. They will get cheap. Um, what turns out to be the case is that's true for some drugs if there's like a huge market for them. But lots of things in the pharmacological world are a little bit niche And to actually create a factory, like, costs money. And what you can do if you have your off-patent drug, you can charge a lot of money. And then if a competitor enters the market, like, then you would cut prices. But then that makes it hard for the competitor to make money, which deters anyone from entering the market in the first place. So you get to keep your prices high, right? So people wind up getting, um, I don't know, like, they got to pay a ton of money for medicine. And the government, you know, which has a public interest in people being able to get medicine, uh, can just sort of plow through that barrier. Yeah. And if I would make like one more point on the politics of this, you know, the Democratic uh, establishment um, said in 2018, look, we need to run on prescription drug prices. Like that is the popular message. And, you know, the, the left, I think, had criticized them like, oh, you're going to do all this stuff on Russia and Trump and impeachment. And to their credit, the the Democratic Party, like mostly focused on bread and butter issues. Um, and I think right, right now we have a bread and butter solution to that issue. You know, Jan Schakowsky and Warren have inter introduced this legislation, but you don't see all of these moderates who are constantly saying Medicare for all is bad hopping on, on this popular populist idea that could solve the problem that they're in Congress because of all of their paid media was attacking Republicans for not addressing this problem. And I think that's the real inconsistency that I find frustrating. And I am willing to say that progressives should not push candidates to run on unpopular issues. I think that progressives should absolutely try to move the discourse in such a way that issues that are currently people not aligned with us move them there. But I don't think that politicians need to be the like leading advocates. I think we should move the people to, to where they want to be. And I'm saying like we can run on tons of popular issues and I'd love to see, you know, the members of Congress actually take that up and do something about that. Right, let's, let's take a break and, and then I want to go, I want to go bigger. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, so like this polling stuff, this is cool, but I guess my question I, I think would be interesting here is like what's the what's like the, the the big idea here? Like what are you what are you what are you trying to do? Sure. You're actually sort of in a lot of ways inspired data for progress. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> um, but you gave a speech at something called the Scholar Strategy Network, in which you said Look, all of you progressives, you know, you tell yourself a story about how they have the money and you have the people. Um, but there are like an increasing number of ways in which like they are getting the people and the money. And we should actually consider that they are better and more effective at using their money. Right. And I actually think you're right about that. If you actually look at the sort of like Koch brothers grand political spending. And they mm -hmm. always lie about it. Like they're like, we're gonna spend a billion dollars this cycle. And they like they never do. <laughs> right. Um, you know, in 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 the scope of like all of the money that is being spent on politics through the foundation world, the Cokes are actually, I think, a relatively small piece of the pie. So we should ask ourselves the question, why are they so effective at using that money? And the reason I think it is is because they are purveyors of ideology. Mm -hmm. They are, I think, obsessed with ideology, what it is, how do you how do you mold it? I think a really concrete core example of this is like the NRA, right? We recently found out that like basically the NRA spends all of their money on public relations, right? right? And so I think if you if you want to understand the NRA, it's not about contributions to lawmakers. And I don't even think it's really about the list of members. Mm -hmm. What it is, is it's about taking this sort of gun rights ideology, infusing it with the sort of conservative Republican Party ideology, and weaponizing it within primaries in the Republican caucus. And by doing that, you can sort of force magnify your influence, because you are like sort of manipulating and influencing ideology, the, the fundamental way that people approach politics. And that is a that is an incredibly powerful thing. I think the on the left, you know, we've sort of seen this with AOC, right? At the mm -hmm. end of the day, AOC won a primary with, you know, eight to 10,000 people. It's a relatively small 
slice of the electorate. But because of the sort of ideological valiance and the ideological power of the sort of progressive left ideology sort of infusing with like the sort of Democratic Party, she's been able to sort of like have a lot more influence and power. And so I sort of see the the future of the sort of left and progressives as playing in that sort of ideological space. And the nice thing about that is ideology ideology is very fucking cheap, so I can afford to do it on my tiny little baby <laughs> so, budget. So what So what does ideology mean in this context, right? I mean, that's like a, I don't know, that's that's a big word. People write whole books uh, trying try to understand what it means. Like, what, what do you mean by, by ideology? I think it's like, the it's the sort of like, it's the ideas primary, right, that we're talking about. Like, it's like, you know, Data for Progress could like spend $100,000 IEs trying to like get, you know, Dan McCready to be the next representative of North Carolina's ninth, or we could spend like, you know, a couple thousand dollars doing polling that shows like progressive ideas are popular and pushing out to the media and trying to sort of like persuade like essentially elites within the Democratic Party and progressive movements. Like these are ideas that we should embrace that are sort of tactically and strategically useful to us um, and could have a big impact. So I think it's like fundamentally we're playing a game uh, we're we're fighting in the in the realm of ideas and we are all in a lot of ways ideological entrepreneurs how does the sort of like progressive collective ideology come to include abortion rights you know environmental um rights and like gun control to me it's not necessarily clear that that had to be the sort of like set of like issues that all map together. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there are lots of times in American politics in which racist ideology actually was quite closely intertwined with environmental ideology. Um, and now we have that sort of reversed. So I'm saying like that is actually an incredibly powerful tool. That is something that the Koch brothers are very invested in doing. They're very invested in thinking about how do we merge a sort of like libertarian ideology with the Republican Party and how do we shift the ideology of the Republican Party. And they've done it to an incredible effect. Um, Alexander Hertel Fernandez had an amazing paper on how the Chamber of Commerce was literally at war with the Koch brothers over Medicaid mm -hmm. expansion. Because all these hospitals, they want Medicaid expansion so sure. they have like less uncompensated care. And the Koch brothers are sort of anti-government lunatics. Um, but they 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 are they have so so like the the reason the Republican governors do not do Medicaid expansion is not because of any economic argument. It is a terrible idea. It kills their own constituents. They do it because of a deeply seated ideological belief. And that is an incredible amount of power. Right. And this is a sort of, you know, difference, right? In the political system, you have ideological actors and you have transactional yeah. actors, right? And, you know, uh, that's a little schematic, like everybody's a, a little sure. bit of both. But it's like one way you can participate in politics is I own a hospital mm -hmm. or I am the executive director of a nonprofit hospital and I would like more customers. Right. Sure. So I show up, I do whatever. Uh, another mode is like, yes, I have an ideology, right? Like I am infused with fighting spirit and I don't really care about the practical consequences of this or that. It's a it's a stand on principle. Right. And the and the Cokes, I, I think a lot of progressives, you know, will try to make them out to be sort of covert transactional right. this players. Is, this is a really smart point. Like, like the whole elaborate thing is like just a scheme to keep their oil refined going. And I mean, I think that's that's 
wrong, right? I mean, like human nature is tinged by self-interest. It's not a it's mm-hmm. not a coincidence that these like rich oil barons fell in with conservative ideology. But like there's the way an oil company lobbyist approaches politics, and there's a way the Koch brothers right. approach politics. And like it it's actually quite different. Right. And it's it's very powerful. And it shows in things like Medicaid expansion, right? Like they try to inspire Republican Party, particularly state legislators, right? Who like it's the ultimate like law, nothing matters elections. It's like guys in gerrymandered state legislative districts. um, They just like convince them to not do this stuff because they think it's wrong. Like there's no there's no like upside to Charles Koch to not doing Medicaid expansion, Mm. right? Right. That's just. Yeah, That's just his thing. Yeah. Right. And the Democratic Party is very transactional, mm-hmm. I think. Um, it has a lot of transactional partners on the left. But like something you see all the time with, with Democratic politicians is like they envision themselves as brokering compromises mm-hmm. between different players. It's like that's how they understand like what politics is for, mm-hmm. right? And it, it's almost like hard to get through the idea of like like what do you think should happen? Right. Right? It like almost doesn't occur to them. And and I see like Kamala Harris has this like verbal tick where she'll say like it's a good time to have a conversation about that. Mm-hmm. Which like I, I think really like reflects her understanding of her role in the political system, right? This is like a, a broker. Like different people will show up being like, I want this. And then someone else will say, no, I don't, right? And like you need politicians to kind of sort it out. Yeah. I would like make one note here, which is that while I think that like studying and understanding the actual mechanism through which organizations like Americans for Prosperity and the NRA have had power, it's also important to, you know, discuss the ways in which fundamentally they're different, right? Mm -hmm. People often compare like Ocasio-Cortez to the Tea Party, but at the end of the day, Ocasio-Cortez has to get something done, right? Like the the Tea Party... (laughs) like literally missed opportunities to like solidify into law their own like stated objectives in terms of, you know, cuts to Social Security um, because they like really hated Obama. So there is a fundamental difference in the way that we approach this. You know, we will always be sort of ideological transactionalists at the end of the day. Bernie Mm -hmm. Sanders, I think, is a good example of this in the Senate where he's like very ideological, but he understands like how to use the amendment process to get things passed. And I Mm -hmm. think one of the most interesting things is going to be starting to see how this these new progressive members of Congress use that both very ideological vision of politics while also a transactional sort of like we do have to like eventually pass something. We can't be full on nihilists because like we want to like help people's lives become better because of politics. And I think that's something Data for Progress wrestles with a lot. I mean, we have a lot of program that is like working to help get regular ass Democrats elected in Virginia. Um, we are really interested and invested in Medicaid expansion and like would like to see Jim Hood be the next governor of Mississippi, despite many ideological disagreements with him, because it is more important that thousands of people in Mississippi have health care than we sort of like win some like ideological battle in Jim Hood like endorses abolishing ICE when Mm -hmm. running for Mississippi governor. So it's something that's a a lot more difficult and we have to hold. But we've also found that our base of people who are invested in Data for Progress don't have trouble holding both of those things at the same time. Most people who support Data for Progress want to run on Medicare for all. And I actually will make a strong case that Democrats should run on Medicare for all. But also like 
will support Democrats who are just normal Democrats in Virginia because we want to control that legislative chamber. And I don't think that's a contradiction. I think it's actually how most progressives approach politics. But so, I mean, one thing that runs through that, though, is a very deep investment in party politics. Oh, yes. This is a fun one. In like primaries on the one hand as a potential venue for, for action and then also in just like winning the election in Mississippi. Yeah, like, but with, I mean, with the the candidate who is there, like doing his best to win a hard election in Mississippi, which is different. Like when I was like a kid, right? Like there was left politics, and there was like electioneering, sure. and it was like these two things had nothing to do with each other. And yeah. I, I don't even know if people can can comprehend, but it's like you you imagine a world long before the Bernie Sanders twenty. 20- 16 campaign, you know, and and some people will be involved in both, but like they had nothing to do with each other. Right. Like mm-hmm. like left politics yeah. was like we would make big paper mache puppets and like do our <laughs> protests. Right. And then like elections was like eh, Bill Clinton. And you see a a version of that in like a, a halfway house, I think, in Bernie Sanders. Right. Mm-hmm. Who like he's a real politician. You, you can't accuse him of like an anti-electoral bias. He's yep. been running office for, for decades, but like he's not in the Democratic Party. A lot of his supporters refer to, like very geared up Bernie people refer to the Democrats as like an other yeah. rather than a, a we. Yeah. And it's a contrast with AOC, right? Who is like, yeah. we should do this. I will, I will, I will let you know that if you see my mentions on Twitter, it is not fully the case that everyone invested <laughs> in left politics is interested in electoral politics. And I no, right. I, I, I think that's that in, what yeah. I mean. Like yeah. it's an important tension. Yeah, I, I take it in stride. I think I think that for some people, like electoral politics will never be um something that interests them for a lot of reasons. And I I actually think that's fine. I think like there are always gonna need to be people who exist outside of the electoral system. But Yes, AOC is very interesting and important. I actually think that identifying as a Democrat is very important for her. Um, I think the fact that she's a woman of color is also very important to making this sort of uh, detente, so to speak. I think that the case that she makes is one that's very persuasive, which is, you know, I'm a Democrat. You're a Democrat. Um, Here's what being a Democrat means to me. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my foundational political beliefs is like a sort of silly phrase, but it's people don't um, care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it's this idea that a lot of what we're doing in politics um, is trying to get people to show that we are authentically engaged in their project. Um, And so part of the thing that we've made clear when we do a primary to data for progress, and not everyone who does primaries does this, but that's their choices. We do not support or even cover really primaries in red to blue districts. Mm-hmm. Um, our view is like, you know, it's really important for Democrats to have those seats. And it's really important for people who identify as like Democrats to understand like this is a project that is fundamentally about making the Democratic Party a more progressive institution um, and not trying to tear it down. And I know like a lot of people are going to be very furious to hear me say that. Um, but I think that over the long term, what's changed from the time that you were a kid to now is that enough people hold left-wing views in the population that it is actually viable and feasible for the progressive left to become a sort of functioning member in good standing of the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. 
ecosystem. And we will not win every battle, but like we will be there, like we will have representatives who are represented. We will be able to like make our case and like we will win some battles and like some things that Ocasio-Cortez and Presley and Omar and Tlaib wants to be law will like eventually become law. Um, and I think the, the important fact is that for the next 15 years, every additional new Democrat that is coming into like voting age um, will be like more progressive than the Democrat that is sort of aging out of the electorate, by which I mean dying. Um, and, <laughs> so, and, so wait, wait, wait. <laughs> let's explain. You you sort of touch on this, but but then you know dashed over it. But the the contrast between a a red to blue primary, sure, right. So so this is like there's target seats, right? Yeah. Like contested races, typically in conservative leaning districts. And one thing that like a person can do with their time is like fight about sure. who should who should run those marginal races. Yeah. But your focus has been more on things like um, these like fights in the safe seats. Right. Because I mean, I looked at, I look at the world as it is and I say, OK, who is the most like liberal person who represents like a red to blue type district? And it's like maybe Rick Nolan or Peter DeFazio. They're great people. I'm really glad that they're in there. If every swing seat Democrat voted like Peter DeFazio, we would be a better world. Um, but I sort of thought, like, after the 2018 elections, like, what if Randy Bryce had won? You know, like, what, what, like, what would that do? And it's like, well, it would have been an additional Democrat, you know, who comes from Wisconsin. It would have been very fun to own the DCCC by being like, haha, you were wrong. Like, you can support all these progressive issues and win. But it wouldn't actually functionally change things. Whereas, like, having Ocasio-Cortez in Congress in a safe seat where she does not have to worry about Republicans. She doesn't give a shit what Republicans think. Mm -hmm. It's actually very, it, it, it gives her a lot of capacity to do actual legislative things and lead on our issues constantly. So I was like, well, we could try to make every red to blue Democrat a Peter DeFazio, or we could try to make every Democrat who represents a district that is D plus five or more into an AOC. And like that would be transformative, right? If every Democrat who was in a safe seat district voted the way AOC votes and led the way AOC leads and thinks about policy, not and not even AOC, like the way Ayanna Presley does, the way um, Deb Holland mm -hmm. does, you know, Holland has done an incredible amount of things to bring attention to, um, you know, missing Native American women. That is an important thing that we do now that we have these power in these safe seat districts. So like that is an incredible amount of, you know, unpicked apples. That is but I mean, th th this is a real contrast though with, with some other people's approach, right? I mean, you said, you know, like it would be fun to say you could own the, the DCCC by like showing yeah. them like socialists are going to win in Tennessee, right? And I mean, th it did seem to me that that was sort of the spirit of a lot of what our revolution did in the in the wake of of 2016 right was like get deeply involved in fights in real reach kind of districts um and 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 some of it is i mean i don't know if it's idealism or naivete or or what right but like i, I think some people would really like to believe that like a hard left agenda is somehow not just like correct but like somehow like the secret to winning over middle america when, I don't know, it's just, I don't, some people are more conservative. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, I have a, another sort of perspective on that, which is that if you do that strategy, the mm -hmm. problem is, is you are allowing the viability of your agenda 
to be determined almost entirely by things that are outside of your control. Mm -hmm. Like this is Fox people, you know, you, you've been learning R. Uh, <laughs> you can download the the data Daily Coast yeah. has it of like the percentage that Hillary Clinton mm -hmm, won in every mm -hmm. congressional race and then the percentage the Democrat won. And then you can like little do a little scatter plot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you can plot a little yeah. fitted line and you can like look up the R squared to that and it'll be like 95, right? Sure. Like, which tells you that like a roughly 5% of the variation in like these sorts of outcomes is things that we actually can control. So if you are trying to do this, like your agenda will not be able to break through in an era of Donald Trump and hyperpolarization. Mm -hmm. We just do not have, if you look at the studies of like campaign tactics, campaigns, running a campaign is like a trench war mm -hmm. in which we are spending millions upon millions of dollars engaging in interventions that have, you know, effects that we measure by like like one percentage point right. in, in the vote share for, for multi-millions of dollars. So like because this is a trench warfare, there just are not that many spaces for like big gains. You know, we're, we're fighting over like, like very little turf. So you just can't really take a district that is, you know, seven to 10 points. Trump, you can't move it. We just, we do not have the tools that are available to move it. If you take the treatment effect of door knocking and then you multiply it by the number of doors, you can't knock enough doors to do this. Um, and so I say, instead of like doing that, like go to primaries, we're like, these are battles of ideology in which the um, number of people who show up is actually highly variable. Mm -hmm. um, you can actually do a lot to persuade Democratic primary voters to move in different directions. They're very persuadable. Um, and in many cases, you're on turf where, quite frankly, the establishment does not have the tools necessary to to actually fight the battles. I mean, AOC, um, during her campaign, they invented a new technology to reach out to people in a sort of urban environment where you'd like maybe meet somebody at a bar or something. It's called Reach. The Elizabeth Warren campaign like now uses that uh -huh. campaign text. So like these sorts of primaries have created like an incredible amount of new technology, new innovation. I think it's a very feckin' space. Um, and I'm saying like invest there. You know, Medicare for all, maybe rural whites fucking love it. You know who really loves it? Fucking Democrats. Uh -huh. Democrats fucking love it. So like take the idea to Democrats and they're going to love your idea and then you can win. <laughs> so I, I actually, I, I want to turn to the whole Medicare for all sort oh, yeah. of conversation. Um, let's, let's take it. Let's take another break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So one thing that I feel like the Medicare for All discourse has done that has been very constructive is uh, some like good Overton window stuff, right? Where, you know, I I mean, this is like, I feel like nobody wants to admit this in Congress, but it's like all kinds of notions have been popping out of the woodwork ever since Medicare for All got on the table uh, because people wanted something to say. You know, that would that would answer some of these impulses. Um, So I think that's good. And I give like all credit to the people who put that on the agenda and like got us talking about public options and buy ins and like kids and, you know, all this other all this other crazy stuff. But I now that that has been done, I have some like really profound doubts about the wisdom Mm -hmm. of like charging at this particular windmill with an idea that seems to blow up every time it actually gets, like, put in the crosshairs. Can I give you another perspective on that? Yes. And we should talk about the Overton window. That's what we're here for. Um, I mean, my view on Medicare for All is that we should take seriously the idea that it is a top-line, very popular idea. Um, And we should take seriously the idea that most Democratic proposals actually, like, top-line are not particularly popular ideas. Um, and we should run on the thing that is like the good message that works. I mean, we've done tests on this. Like if you run on Medicare for all, like you can perform quite well. Um, I can't, I'm not a policy expert. Um, I know that Matt Iglesias or uh, Matt Brunig and Klein had, Ezra Klein had a very good conversation about that. And I'll defer entirely to them on that. But what we've seen is like the idea of Medicare for all is a very popular one. Um, and I think we should run on popular ideas. Um, and I think like if we have an idea of like sort of expanding a very popular program to meet all Americans, like why not run on this incredibly popular, very simple to understand concept um, and then figure out the details. I'll let the nerds figure out the details <laughs> after. Uh, figure out the details. I'm just a swaggering pollster, you know. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I guess there's there's something to be said for that. Uh, but like. Well, you were telling me that, like, you've been on the phone with economists trying to find out what kind yeah. of payroll tax is yeah. going to be enough. What, what are they telling you? We have done it with the payroll tax. If you don't get rid of private insurance, um, you have the payroll tax increases, you have the arguments for and against, you end up getting, like, a roughly, like, right, roughly where, like, I think Gallup, we did all of this yeah, to yeah, figure yeah, out yeah, where yeah. Gallup has it, which is like, it's like plus four or five points mm-hmm. where it has been for <laughs> as long as they've pulled it. Um, yeah. Like so it's, Gallup, those guys. Oh, yeah. Do some, they do some polling. Yeah. I mean, if if you, it once the entire issue goes through the whole fight, it will be like a, a modestly supported issue. The idea itself is quite popular. I think if you want to make an argument against Medicare for all, you should do it on the technical technical details, which I do not understand, yeah. and not on the actual polling merits, because I think we've seen pretty definitively that as long as you're not getting rid of private insurance, a you know publicly run healthcare system that everyone 
is covered by is popular. right, but but that's a big that's a big caveat as long as you're not getting rid of privately run insurance, right? I mean, because I, I, not not to make everything be about the 2020 primary, but as I'm sure you know, <laughs> there are people out there who will tell you that it's not really Medicare for all unless it contains uh, this elimination of private insurance, and that seems like the dysfunctional end of thinking about putting progressive ideas into the mainstream, right? Where certain people's egos and various different individuals desire to be president rather than somebody else has like pushed the discourse in this like kind of weird direction where like incredibly expansive uh, like growths of public programs are like somehow bad because they're being compared to a totally hypothetical alternative. Well, you can. I, my understanding is that every country that has universal public insurance also has like you can supplement it with private insurance. Yeah, I mean, I think in the real world, right? I mean, because like actual programs are not like as fully generous as like the Progressive Caucus's sure. little sketch, and then yeah, people buy private supplemental insurance. That's what I meant. I to be clear, I didn't intend to suggest like a, a buy-in. I support full Medicare for all with the option. To oh, there you go. You don't want to get insurance. canceled. Well, no, I mean, like, it's also my my view. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so wait, you said what? You said you said you wanted to say something about the Overton window. Wait, wait. I just want to make clear. Yeah, my understanding is that you can do full private insurance, Republican, full, full Medicare for all, and then add additionally, people can supplement with private sure. insurance. Yeah, no, no. I, I that see is what popular. Um, that we have polled. Um, when you say you're getting rid of private insurance as well, it is underwater, right. and it is my ethical duty as a pollster to. <laughs> Ethics. We've, we've all signed, you know, blood oath. Um, you know, sure. To shit can polls when they're bad. No, I'm just. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so on the yeah, I think like I think like there is a sort of sense of like you have to move the Overton window, but I always say sometimes you have to walk through the Overton door. Yeah. Right. Like you just can't keep moving the window, and I think this is actually what the Republican Party has failed to do. Right. Like they've moved the Overton window and they never walk through the door. Yes. Like they moved the window and they were like convinced, you know. Many Democrats like, oh, we do need to cut entitlements. And they're like, well, well, so we don't want to do that, which is great. I'm glad that Republicans are bad at doing politics. But I do think that like the goal here is always you push, you push, you push in order to make the most expansive agenda possible because your goal is to move what the pivotal actor in the political system sees as like a viable option. Mm -hmm. I should say, you know, I actually introduced the the Overton window to this discussion, but I always kind of hate the Overton window because I feel like what's actually going on with these things. So the Overton window, for those who don't know, this is this idea that like you sometimes need to um, espouse a kind of extreme idea to expand the the space of, of the possible, um, which I mean, obviously does happen sometimes. But I feel like a lot of the time what's most important is that you alter the issue agenda, right? So it's like there was an Affordable Care Act debate and then the law passed. And then to most just sort of practical Democrats, like they just didn't want to talk about health care anymore, right? And the big one of the big things that, that Bernie's campaign in 2016 and the Medicare for All push did was just like put it on the agenda. So now everybody, instead of like having in a dusty file drawer somewhere, like my plan to make health care better... It was like suddenly like everyone's like, what are you doing about healthcare? Um, and in, in that case, right, like it generates a lot of progressive 
ideas because um, I'd like fundamentally public opinion on health policy is like quite progressive. So as long as people are talking about healthcare, it like it, it leads you in that direction, I think. Yeah. And specifically public opinion on healthcare is more supportive of a sort of Bernie or progressive style healthcare policy than a sort of more centrist one in the sense that the Medicaid expansion components of the Affordable Care Act are the most popular, durable, effective expansions. Right. Um, whereas the private ones were actually much more unpopular and much harder to prevent from being clawed back, right? Mm -hmm. the, many of the gains um, have been clawed back by like the Republicans getting rid of the individual mandate. These markets are constantly in sort of like flux. Um, whereas the Medicaid expansion proposals are, you know, quite popular. Um, and in fact, more and more states are further expanding Medicaid right. um, as we go forward. So I think that progressives have a case there. One other thing I would just note, though, on the thing you said about about healthcare is like Bernie's position on this actually, to me, makes a lot of intuitive sense, which is Bernie says, I want to talk a lot about healthcare, And also, like, I believe that our plan should be Medicare for all. I actually find the sort of establishment's argument on this to be incredibly confusing, which is that we should simultaneously confused. exclusively run ads on healthcare, but also we do not have any coherent plan in terms of what we actually would like to do on healthcare or on prescription drugs, for that matter, that like, and in fact, like often the sort of more establishment centrist red to blue Democrats in the caucus who are simultaneously centering healthcare as their issue are breaking from the caucus on things like negotiating with Medicare or Medicare negotiating with drug companies. No, I mean, I think, look, I mean, the, the problem that centrist Democrats have in general is that they want to avoid big political risks. Um, but the biggest political risk in progressive politics is veering off economics or raising middle class people's taxes. But so that leaves you, right, with like the what's really the politically safest agenda is to like directly stick it to the man, right? Like just regulate prescription drug prices, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. make them pay a higher minimum wage, right? Like those are the the, the that is like the real political safe space for Democrats. Uh, but that's like the kill zone on K Street. Right. And so they're constantly spun around, right? Like there's there's like whatever it is you're talking about, they always have a reason to like not do that thing. Um, and they never really settle on, I think, like an agenda, right? Where it's like, all right, I'm handing the mic over to you. Like, what are you guys gonna do? And it's like it's it's nothing. And it and that to me actually, I mean, I, I wrote about this in the in the context of third way, but that's a real change from the DLC era when whatever you sort of thought of 90s New Democrat politics, it had a quite robust um policy agenda. You know, it was like we should do these things. Um and it's now become a sort of quiescent, like, don't make me vote for this. Sorry. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, like when we did the policy pairs, like I want it to be as fair as as possible. And I think like where where possible, we try to use language from these organizations. And like one of the things I was trying to do was like just figure out what the fuck their policies were. And it was like surprisingly hard because like it's like if you look at the sort of like the sort of generic centrist thing, like 
it's all these polling memos with these like theoretically policy ideas, but it's mm-hmm. actually really hard to like nail them down. I'm like, what specifically do you propose to, you know, they'll be like, well, the, the best polling thing we did was the make veterans healthy and happy bill. It's like, well, what specifically are you doing to make veterans healthier and right. happier? Um, but so what happened to abolishing ICE? Oh, wow. That was like, that was your thing, right? I mean, I've, I've been pretty consistent that I don't think that I created abolish ice or anything like that. Um, for one, um, there was actually a morning consult poll that just came out that shows that ice is becoming increasingly unpopular and that more and more Democrats would like to see a Democrat who supports abolishing ice. Um, so there you it's, go. It's I think like there are many immigrant rights groups that continue to um, use the framework of abolish ice. Uh, much to their credit. But I think that a lot of it is that most of the immigration discussion now is focused on um, the border um, rather than sort of internal detentions and, mm-hmm. and deportations. But, um, you know, AOC has continued to refuse to support any, um, you know, legislation that would increase the funding for ICE. And I think that you will definitely see um, when Democrats have power uh, a fundamentally restructuring of the agency. It's very clear in the sort of immigration reform p- proposals that have come out from like Julian Castro um, that a restructuring of ICE will absolutely be like a, a core part of the progressive agenda. Right. So perhaps the the slogan uh, has has seen its best days, uh, but 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 the idea of some kind of like systematic overhaul of interior enforcement, you think? Yeah, it lives it's, on. I mean, progressives, Democrats are increasingly liberal on questions of immigration. They're moving towards the abolish ICE direction, not away from it. Um, ICE and immigration enforcement are, I think, increasingly associated with Trump mm-hmm. um, and are increasingly associated with the, like, you know, in the sort of essay I wrote in The Nation on the case for abolishing ICE, you know, I made the case like these, it, it's, it's very hard to tell that these are not sort of like fundamentally like white supremacist, you know, like deportation task force. And the fact that ICE continues to like accidentally on purpose detain American citizens who are people of color, I think is very indicative of what the goals and mission of the agency are. So I I absolutely think that that will be something that is a core part of the progressive agenda. But I think that you also have the case of like, just policies tend to ebb and flow. I mean, right. we're not we're not talking a lot about DACA right now. We will very shortly when, um, you know, DACA case comes in front of the Supreme Court. But I think there's a natural ebb and flow to the um, sort of what issues are salient. I mean, inequality, yep. you remember, very popular sort of- I've heard of inequality. Less popular. I mean, it's like still popular to address inequality, but it's not talking about like most of the stuff right now is healthcare and- um, climate are sort of, I think, leading the progressive agenda. All right. So but before we wrap up, I, I always like to ask guests, uh, what, what should I have asked you about? What what didn't we talk about here? Oh, we haven't talked about the Great Awakening in the... Oh, yeah. The idea you kind of low-key stole from me. But you, you put a good name title on it, which is important. <laughs> Let's talk about it. The Great Awakening. Yeah. Um, I mean, I will say another sort of first on the Vox pod, mostly because I'm just like... Running an organization requires an incredible amount of work and effort. Um, that's why I don't get to tweet as much anymore. Oh, that's sad. There are some think tank presidents who can tweet. 
and I I respect the game. I respect the hustle. I'm envious. Um, but so I, I just like I, I once said that I, I feel like I've been like cursed by some sort of like witch to have like unlimited access to like pulling. Like uh-huh. I can pull anything I want any geography at any time. And I have like zero time to like even look at it beyond like the top lines. Um, But we did do the survey of Democratic primary voters with YouGov. um, And we like everyone looks at just like, who's up? Is it Biden? Is it Warren? And, um, and, you know, we had interesting results there. But we also had like a bunch of what's called in the political science, you know, world racial resentment Mm -hmm. batteries. Um, and what we saw with that is that, and, and it's YouGov, so YouGov is also the main vendor for the Cooperative Congressional Election Studies mm-hmm. survey, so you can compare the sampling data, frames. Yeah. Um, same question wording. And what we're actually seeing is like Democratic primary voters, like since the time you wrote that article, are moving even further. And since the time I wrote the article in the New York Times, <laughs> they preceded it. Um, they're moving even further to the left. And I think that this is going to be an interesting, you know, question. Like the millennial generation is, you know, there's all this talk about like, oh, is Gen Z, you know, reactionary? Sure. And the answer is like, they might be somewhat more conservative than millennials, but that's actually because like millennials are sort of the Warren court of the sort of American political system. They're Uh like, this is like really weirdly liberal generation. So I think you have this incredibly interesting 15 years ahead of us, Mm -hmm. right? Where you have an incredibly liberal cohort that is coming into peak voting years. They have homes, they live in a community, they are, they have money Mm because they're professional jobs. I mean, like the democratic small dollar donor advantage is like taking off. Like every person who writes about politics who's under 30 is like super progressive, right? Mm -hmm. Like the means of production of takes Yes. <laughs> the takes mean, uh, means of production is like increasingly helmed by young people. So I think like there are so many political forces in America that are super fucked up. But there is this hope that I have of like we have this 15 years where we are going to sort of age into like incredible amounts of, you know, power and influence. And the sort of like uh, one of the things people have been asking is like, Sean, why is everyone who's running for president like so progressive? Right. right? And it's probably because, like, the people who are telling them what views they should hold are people who are 30 years old. Right, the people working on the campaign. who are progressive, right? And, like, so much of politics is unknowable things. Like, so much of, you know, we have all this polling, we have all this message testing, but at the end of the day, there are a lot of really hard decisions. And, like, where do you default to? What is your prior is going to, I think, move the political the views of the voters to the left. And at the same time, I have this terror, right? Because I think about the thing about taking the Senate and like, you're not even bleak enough when you talk about the Senate. You're like, oh, our chances of taking the Senate are like very low. It's like, (laughs) okay, well, what if we take the Senate? Well, then the pivotal vote is Joe Manchin. And it's like, okay, well, what if we take the Senate and we win Georgia too? And it's like, well, the pivotal voter is Kirsten Sinema. It's like, okay, well, what if we win the Senate and we win Georgia and Texas? Well, the pivotal center is Tom Carver, right? right. Like, I I like wake up and I just have dreams like of, you know, Gary Peters. Imagine if he was the pivotal center. Like he sure. was the guy who we had to convince. You would need to win a lot of seats for Gary Peters to be the pivotal senator. But like I that's like it's just like yeah. that's the terrifying thing about the American political system is like how 
how long can we last with like the inputs of our system and the outputs being so at conflict, right? Like we have this new progressive gender project. Like there were so many left-wing ideas that are so popular across the entire country. Um, and, you know, like two senators from Wyoming get to <laughs> say, fuck you. There so. you go. That's a fun one. Thank you. Uh, right. <laughs> thank you, Sean. Thanks to everybody out there who's listening. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will return on Tuesday. Tuesday.